time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. Now, here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin'. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. Monday, April 11th. Woohoo! This year's going by, and what's going on with the market? So much for that prediction that we hit the high here a week or so ago. Yeah. Anyway, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we're so grateful to have you as our listener. Again, our commitment to you is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime and anywhere. Talk about relevant timely information. Jack Nunnery and I, my co-host, hooked up with Brian Montgomery this past Friday late afternoon. Normally Jack's out on the bay, but when we're going to interview Brian, he says, I'll forgo from fishing and come on in and enjoy enjoy this interview. And Jack found his podcast voice. You'll have to listen to this. It's pre-recorded, but we're going to be playing that in the second half of this podcast for those of you listening live. So good to have you here with us. We're going to be talking about why it is taking so long to get the FHA commissioner and uh, HUD nominees confirmed. That's one of the things we're talking about servicing. We're talking about it's been tough for first-time home buyers. There's a lot of great information that Brian shared with us from his perspective. And I invited him to come on to the podcast because of how I heard him speak with Jack Connick. Jack was our guest last week, so we're bringing them back from what I heard at the Ledger One conference in Phoenix here, gosh, a month ago or so. Anyway, good to have you here, folks. Hey, we're proud to be a part of this industry syndicate. Encourage you to check out all of the podcasts at industrysyndicate.com. Also, we want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, starting right off with the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. The MBA does a great job of bringing us information timely and is a strong advocate for us on the hill get that mortgage action alliance we talk about it regularly get the mortgage action alliance the mall app out of your favorite online store whether it be apple or google or however you go get it but it's there go get it download it and have that be a part of your weekly routine and be a responsible lender have your voice heard they're doing the work all you have to do is make some clicks and your voice goes right into the hill right to your respective legislators. Also, special thank you to the Nastra's Fusion Mortgage Bot Solutions. Set custom decisioning parameters to help streamline the approval process. Go back and listen to Chris Zingo, who we had as a guest in March 7th. The information is really relative, and we're always interested to see what the number one fintech company in the world is thinking. And Chris did a great job of sharing their thoughts and their vision. Lenders One and the Mortgage Collaborative, these are the two co-ops that we recommend you become members of both of them. I'll never again replaces the MBA, but these two are wonderful ways in which you can connect in a more intimate setting with your peers. Lenders of the same size, find out what's going on, checking peer analysis. What are you experiencing from cost? What are you doing that's working? What's not working for you? And it's these kind of open formats and then getting to know us vendors that are there. I'm there with the podcast. I'm there with Transformational Mortgage Solutions. And it's really important for vendors to get to be a member of both of these as well as the lenders. Such a great connection tool, making meaningful relationships so you have the latest information, know what's going on in the industry. Total Expert turns customer insights into actions to increase loyalty and drive growth for banks, lenders, credit unions, and other institutions. Check out Joe Wellu's interview that we did on March 14th. Did a great job. Total Expert, powerful, the industry-leading CRM and so much more. Also, 
Knowledge Coop does a great job of helping you train your people. Check out Knowledge Coop. They've gone live with their new Knowledge Coop platform, and we're so excited. Also, Mobility MMI and Modic, so you can access data about your loan officers you're considering working with and hiring, and you can find out exactly what they're funding and with whom. Powerful tool when it comes to recruiting something we use here in our consulting firm, Transformational Mortgage Solutions, and helping clients. I encourage you to check out both these. But also Snapbox. Snapbox powers over 3 million mortgage closings last year for lenders in title insurance companies and notaries. Also, Success Kit. You can get unlimited referrals, but can you make it all from your prospects? Trust others more by getting your customer testimonials on your website or being told. I mean, these guys do a great job of collecting testimonials from your customers and then sharing them. It's the best way for you to get business, whether you're a loan officer or a company. Check out successkit.io and also listen to the interview we did with Julian Lumpkin on January 10th. Also, Lender Toolkit. Yeah, I love Brent Brumley and Brent Emler. These two characters are so much fun. What amazing products they have. They have raving fans. NRL says they love this technology because of what it does for them, enabling them to become more efficient. Also, Form Free. Brent Chandler was on on February 28th, again, talking about the innovation that they have, as well as Simple Nexus. We had Lori Brewer on. On March 21st, again, Lori's company, LBAware, was acquired by Simple Nexus. Great story of what's going on with Simple Nexus, and we're so thrilled to have them as one of our newest sponsors. Also, DW Consulting, Debbie Wiemens, as well as her partners that she works with there, help you get your LinkedIn profile right so it attracts the right people. And that's not just for job changes. More and more people are going to check out LinkedIn profiles to find out if they want to work with you. Are you as experienced as you represent? So it's a great way to have your story told and get more business. So also a final thank you to Rob, Les, Alice, Alan, Matt, and of course, my new co-host, Jack Nunnery. Good to have you all with us. Appreciate it. Welcome to the Hot Topic segment of the Looking on Lending podcast. It is Monday, April 11th. We're thrilled to have with us our special guest, Brian Montgomery. He is the founding partner and chairman of Gate House Strategies, LLC in the D.C. area. He was the former HUD deputy secretary. And uh, Jack and I caught up with him last week. Jack normally is out fishing on a Friday afternoon. And then he, I invited him to come in and do this. He says, Get a chance to talk with Brian Montgomery. Are you kidding? Yeah. Give up fishing for an afternoon and come in and join us. Jack is kind of semi-retired. But Jack, tell me what your thoughts are. Our listeners are about ready to listen to. I know that was a good interview. Oh, David, I just thought that Brian touched on so many topics that are germane to the environment that we find ourselves in now. And Brian has been well-connected through the halls of Congress and on the Hill and the policymakers. And it really is insightful when you get an opportunity to spend some time with somebody that has been in policy formation himself and certainly has influenced policymakers. Yeah. And he did it on a bipartisan basis, which you're going to hear about in this interview. Let's get into the interview that Jack and I did with Brian late Friday afternoon this past week. So, Brian, anyone listening to this podcast knows who you are. You're a veteran in our industry, been a leader for many, many years with all the positions you've held of significance, of influence. But for those that are new to our industry, we have a lot of them listening to this podcast. Would you give a little bit of a background of how you got to where you're 
at today, a little bit of your journey and your path, please. Well, thank you for having me on, David and Jack. It's a bit of a long, winding road, but I will spare you the minutia of it. Well, today, now that I'm out of my government service, I'm a co-founder and partner at Gatehouse Strategies. We're focused on all things mortgage-related, risk, business development, compliance, regulatory issues, you name it. We also have a focus on, by the way, multifamily and subsidized housing and community development as well. But a lot of folks know me from my government service. I'm the immediate past deputy secretary of a position I held concurrently, by the way, with being commissioner of the FHA and assistant secretary for housing. I used to call it three titles and one paycheck. So the taxpayers were definitely getting their money's worth out of me. The FHA commissioner is a job I actually had twice. I guess I'm the only guy dumb enough to do the job, not just once, but twice under three different presidents, under Bush, Obama, and Trump. I was uh, home over into the Obama administration for six months, running the FHA, which in 09, there was a lot going on, as we all know. So I, I really enjoyed the housing field, working with folks. It's one of the issues in Washington, D.C., I found that it's a little easier to find a little consensus, a little easier to get a little bipartisanship, which I like, because that's quite frankly the way you get stuff done. Yeah. It's hard to get it done, especially when you look at where the environment is today. You've been there. So let's talk a little bit about the environment in Washington, D.C. It seems to be tough right now. But having been through the process three times, let's start off with this question. Why is it taking so long to get the FHA commissioner and HUD nominees confirmed? Well, in the old days, a new administration, a president would get their nominees. Right. It didn't matter if it was a HUD or labor or commerce. Now, the path for a cabinet secretary nominee or deputy secretary might be a little more difficult, but typically assistant secretaries, commissioners, unless they were really contentious, largely got through unanimous consent. Well, those days are in our rearview mirror. Now, both parties are guilty of it. Now, it's literally just a battle in the trenches, even to get assistant secretaries and commissioners and you name it, confirmed. It took me seven months to get confirmed as FHA commissioner the second time. First time, it took about two and a half months. And first time I got through unanimous consent. The second time, even though it took seven months, when I got a vote, I got 73, I believe, which means I got about half Democrats. So people would say, well, why did it take so long to get <laughs> confirmed if you give good bipartisan support? So this go around, I think it's just gotten even more contentious. And I've decided to publicly support Julia Gordon. She's enormously mm-hmm. qualified. And to yep. be clear, she supported me when I was up years ago. And I think they need her, someone of her experience and the housing policy, hands-on experience. She worked at FHFA, worked at Center for Responsible Lending. They need her in the seat. So we had a little movement earlier this week. They got her vote out of committee. It took the vice president of the United States to break the tie. It's unfortunate she didn't get at least some Republican support. But So I think she's now hopefully on a path to, to get in there in the next few weeks. Well, we certainly do hope so. We've been impressed with her when I've heard her speak. Very qualified. Jack, let's get over to you. Thanks, David. Brian, it's just an amazing journey that you've been on. But speaking of tough environments, we're getting into seemingly rougher waters in the housing market. It's been challenging for the first-time home buyers for some time now, given unrelenting home price appreciation and an affordable housing supply shortage. But now it's getting even tougher with rates going up along with prices and supply shortage. What is FHA doing to assist first-time minority 
and LMI borrowers and what can they be doing? Better yet, Brian, how's the rest of Washington viewing the housing market? And will there be any innovative efforts to assist younger first-time home buyers, many of them minorities? Well, as we know, the FHA has been the, the hallmark of not just first-time home buyers, but obviously minority home buyers as well. Every year, 35%, give or take a few of the FHA endorsements are to minorities. Now, which, by the way, is almost two times what the GSEs are. The GSRs are around 17 or 18%. But within that construct, you're dealing with a housing market today that is very short on inventory, especially starter home inventory. And we know there's a lot of reasons for that. And some would say you could place some of that blame at the local level. Some of the regulatory barriers and hurdles that communities have put up, particularly on each coast, particularly in California, I would add, is just before you even turn a shovel of dirt, you've got $100,000 in fees racked up or, you know, set aside and things of that nature. That's not much Washington can do in that space. But and I think California is trying to address some of that. But you just really have an imbalance where housing is just getting so far out of reach for so many families because given the cost to manufacture loans, given the cost to obviously build housing today with construction costs, building material, labor costs, everything going up, people aren't building in that entry home level. I think you're starting to see a rise in condominiums. The FHA updated their rules four or five years ago to make that a little easier for condominiums. So in terms of the innovation, you've got innovation going on, but you also have a really aggressive enforcement backdrop. You've got a CFPB director that's really focused on turning up the heat on servicers, many of whom, who I think have done a tremendous job trying to help their borrowers, who hundreds of thousands of them are still in COVID-19 forbearance. Many of them have rolled off, but a lot of our folks who work in industries that were greatly impacted by the pandemic and still haven't fully recovered. And you've got a backdrop of rising interest rates. So you got a tough starter home inventory, both new and existing. You've got higher interest rate environment, shortage of inventory. It's a delicate balance right now. So I would hope as FHA and the GSEs and the housing policymakers in this town understand that there's some parts of the backdrop that need to change to break the calculus a little of you. Yeah, I think you brought up the headwinds that the starter home market or anyone building today is. And I just came back, TMC conference in Miami. The president, uh, CEO of the Home Builders Association talked about in California alone that 50% of the price is made up of regulation to build a new home, 50%. I mean, that's just astounding. Any comments to that? Do you see anything easing on that? Well, it manifests itself in deleterious ways, right? <laughs> yep. And part of that is, look, you've seen a rise in homelessness. And by the way, it's not the chronically homeless. A lot of folks that just don't have anywhere to live. I mean, we all know for years, we've all been to Los Angeles area many times. It seems like people just kept moving further and further out, right? Right. And now even being way out in Inland Empire, Rancho Cucamonga, San Bernardino, well, Two hours from downtown, the housing there is still way out of reach for most families. Where does it stop? That is a great question. I'd love to find someone who could give us an answer on that. Let's turn to the servicing side of the business, Brian. The CFPB, led by Director Chopa, has been very vocal and doing so on social media on a number of lending issues, but he seems to have the mortgage servicers in his sights. It would appear servicers have done a lot to help people get through this crisis thus far, keeping people in their homes consistent with the government's forbearance and foreclosure policies. 
Nevertheless, some would say they have done a very good job. That seems fair. But now the environment seems fraught with risk for servicers. What is going on here, really? And what do servicers need to be thinking about and doing about all this to stay out of the line of fire? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's one big difference between the environment services are in today versus what they were in 08, 9, 10, 11. A pandemic that's no one's fault, not the borrower's fault, not the lender's fault. Darns are in the servicer's fault. And it impacted all of us in ways we're extremely familiar with. I mean, literally, I'm at running the FHA at the time, and we're talking to the CFPB and the FHFA almost every day. We're talking to the lending community, the servicing community, the low-income housing advocates, the community developments, the mayors. We're talking to them daily, weekly, working with them. We're collaborating because we were there was a sense that we were all in this together. Right. And we're all trying to help the citizens of this country. We're all trying to help homeowners or those less fortunate who live in subsidized housing. And the only way we did that was by working together. And I don't know what it is in this administration, and I try to be open-minded about it. It's almost like, what can they do to be contentious about so many things? I mean, even before they got into office, some of their designees, they weren't even nominated yet, already threatening servicers. I'm going, what have they done this go-around, right? Plenty of blame to go around 15, 12, 14 years ago. But this go-around, they literally morphed themselves overnight into totally remote operations just like everybody else. And quite frankly, I think most of them did a pretty darn good job. And they have no interest in seeing a borrower fail. That's costly for the borrower, certainly. It's costly for them. So I just don't understand the backdrop and the need just to be contentious. Waking up every morning, it's like, well, how can we put more demands on an industry? And I'm just talking about servicing here. They can throw rocks at whoever else they want to. That's quite frankly doing a lot they can to help borrowers who are in very difficult circumstances. Continue to reach out to borrowers, knock on their door, and then they're all doing this. Maybe some of these regulators need to go spend a little time <laughs> with some of these servicers, so, companies that are going out, knocking on doors, saying, hey, I'm not here to take your home. I'm here to help you. Yeah. And families hurting out there. And that would be so good when we're advising companies to say, when was the last time the executive leadership team went out to actually sit and do the jobs? I think that's one of the things I love about Southwest Airlines. They make the executives go out and get down inside the belly of the airplanes and load the luggage. I think we could carry that to D.C. What can they do or should they do right now in light of the assaults, if you will? Well, look, the best thing they can do is they want to help their clients. Mm-hmm. They want to help their customers. And they want the, the loan to succeed and they follow the guidelines of the GSEs from FHA, BA, USDA. So the best thing they do is have their teams keep focused, keep their head down on helping customers, let other people fight the battle, whether it's a trade group or whatever. And you look at some of the surveys out there. I mean, look, there's always mistakes. There's always things that follow through the cracks. But as we know, there's a lot of friction in this industry. There's a lot of moving parts around. But by and large, and I've worked very closely with many services, some of the biggest ones out there for years, and their executives, no even mid-level management, people down in the trenches, they want to get it right. And I just think there's a part of D.C. up here that assumes the worst of intentions. That's really, really true. Jack. Ryan, let's stay on the theme of enforcement. HUD and the Justice Department worked hard to bring some sanity to the use of the False Claim Act to pursue lenders via a memorandum of understanding signed in 2019. I understand you were very involved in that agreement. Can you explain how that came about 
is the memorandum of understanding in force and working? And can you talk a little bit about that process and if we might see the return of the False Claim Act? Well, it's really never gone away in the purest sense of the word. I remind people, False Claim Act has been around since the Civil War, which, as we all know, was used to go after, uh, let's just say, rather less than honorable people selling diseased meat or sick horses to the Union Army. So context of FHA, yes, we worked very hard to bring a little sanity to the process. Certainly the Justice Department and U.S. attorneys have a big say in this thing, but we were involved in some of those cases early on, and I, I think people know my view on this, but it's one thing to have fraud and misrepresentation. It's another thing to have clerical administrative errors. And the sad ripple effect of all this was the largest depositories just walked away from the FHA program. And that's why we worked so hard to bring a little sanity to the process, which and that's why we updated the low-level search and the annual search. And sort of the icing on the cake was the MOU of the Justice Department, which, by the way, it's not easy to get the Justice Department to reorient their thinking on things, right? And certainly something as big as the False Claim Act, but our general counsel at the time, Paul Compton, Obviously, Secretary Carson was working hard with Attorney General Barr, and we were able, I believe it was October, November 2019, finalize the MOU, which was put into the U.S. Attorney's Manual, which I think they call the Justice Manual now. Last time I looked, it's still there, and it essentially says, Justice Department, either a U.S. Attorney or Maine Justice Civil, if you're going to pursue a False Claim Act, you need to do so in concert with working with the FHA and the beauty of this is having a body like the Mortgagee Review Board, which is made up of the Senate-confirmed leadership of HUD. So, therefore, you're not putting that decision burden on one individual, either the FHA commissioner or the secretary. You now have a governing body that can determine, does this rise to the level of false claim, or is this something else that FHA can pursue on its own to take action? Like they don't want to tolerate people that don't follow their rules or, worse yet, claim to have gotten religion around some enforcement action and turn around and do the same thing all over again. But that's a big jump to go from that to the false claim act. That's true. So I hope that cooler heads prevail and we were able to get the support of some of the consumer groups getting that MOU done. So hopefully it endures. While you're hopeful and certain, based on the climate we're in, any predictions on that at this point? Or what would you say to lenders looking at this? I would say it would be hard to unwind a common sense policy that says we are going to bring this being potential false claim act to the HUD mortgagee review board. Note I said HUD, not FHA, because it's made up of HUD leadership. It'd be hard to say that's not a fair process. So you'd have to really take some convincing to tell people, well, that doesn't work. Of course it works. So I hope that part of it endures. Yeah, I come back to the bipartisanship you are able to amazingly do through your leadership there, and that's so significant. We talked about forbearance, and many have come off and have been able to resume payments, either because they have the income or, hey, even received modification, including use of the partial claim. Looking at the challenges around those impacted by COVID and still struggling from the loss of income, how will servicers be able to assist these borrowers going forward, recognizing many are still in industries that are recovering from the pandemic, including hospitality, travel, lodging, etc.? We obviously early on, I say we, and I'm going back to March and February of 2020, put a lot of policies into place, uh, recognizing that People didn't want complete strangers in their house anymore. And it was a learning process through it. And luckily, we'd had a lot of experience dealing with natural disasters, hurricanes, right? 
But those are localized or regionalized. You may get three or four states, never 50, in, including territories or in, in others, gets you up to 57 or so. You make improvements to the loss mitigation, to things such as a partial claim and all that. And this administration, look, early on, it's, it's tough. You still don't have people in the, the seats that you need filled. But their credit, they jumped on this pretty quickly. And last year rolled out some improvements and some changes, just like we had done years before. And, you know, they knew that this was an issue because the, by and large, it's disproportionate number of the folks in forbearance then and even still today. Not surprisingly, our FHA borrowers, as you mentioned, a lot of them are in industries that are still impacted by COVID-19. So I think they're continuing, I think, to manage that fairly well. The, the big issue will, will be how this homeowners assistance fund plays out. Treasury created the program and left it to the state HFAs. Which, by the way, that's a big job to do for an agency, whether it's you know, Texas, California, Arizona, New Mexico, that already has a day job, right? Hey, while you're at it, go stand up a de novo program. Here's $900 million and to go help homeowners. And obviously, a lot of states brought in contractors. So no, that was slow. It's naturally a slow process to stand up. I'm not faulting the states by any stretch, but that program's really just getting up and running now in most states. So hopefully that $10 billion pot of money will go to help those low modern income borrowers, especially those that have been so impacted by job loss, either unemployment or underemployment, and hopefully it will help stave off so they can get back on their feet. And hopefully COVID will get a little larger in our rearview mirror and we'll hopefully get to a better place here sooner rather than later. Are we seeing any success from that program? I'm speaking about the Homeowners Assistance Fund. It is still so young. I mean, obviously, NCSHA posts data on their website talking about the states and where they stand. And so far, I think it's doing what it's intended to do. But I think it's going to probably take a few more weeks, probably even months, before we really see the, the impact of it. Jack? Ryan, going back to FHA, the pandemic highlighted the importance of modernization, digital solutions, and the integration of technology that works well with one another. Where does FHA's IT modernization stand? Well, as you all know, I had this job twice. Back when I had it in 05 to 09, I used to tell folks, we really need to modernize FHA's technology and bring it into the late 90s. I kind of still said that 10 years later when I said, look, I'd settle for the late 90s, even though it was now 2018 instead of 2008. But I don't know what it was. It certainly wasn't my good looks. But coming out of the government shutdown in February of 2019, Congress said, all right, we heard you. We're going to give you $20 million as, a, as a down payment on this modernization. And so we had a great team largely run by career staff and uh, a great contractor, a woman-owned business. They worked real hard through 2019 and early 2020. I mean, literally just as the pandemic was taking hold, FHA rolled out the electronic submission of claims, which you know, prior to that had been a paper-intensive process, as you all know. So can you imagine with, with COVID and all that and having to get those claims in via paper? And there's been other improvements to the program. And by the way, not just in single family and multifamily and also in the Office of Native American Programs, so they're all buying program. There's other modules rolling on, online, and the solution is called Catalyst. The new administration can obviously go whatever direction they want, but I think they do understand there's certainly a need for modernization, and they continue to roll out things relative to improving FHA systems. So, by the way, the big part of it was just digitizing everything. And even still so today, a lot of the, the systems run on mainframes, which 
are reliable, don't get me wrong, but they're very costly to maintain. And they're hard-coded. We took a page from what Fannie Mae had done and went to a heavy data-centric architecture, moving away from paper, for example, which is big. FHA typically generates a lot of paper. So anyway, I think this administration, again, they can go whatever direction they want, but I think the industry, trade groups have gotten behind the modernization effort. And given the great work Fannie and Freddie have done in that area, don't want FHA to be the weakest link in that chain. How is the fund overall doing, the FHA fund? How is that looking at this point? It looks tremendous. Look, to be clear, its value is placed in home price appreciation. Yes. And which we've been very much the benefactor of. But we left the administration with a positive economic value of about $75 billion. That number is now up to about $100 billion. Who would have ever thought the FHA would have an economic value 2x the GSEs? I won't go down the path of what the GSEs had to do in that respect, but there are situations dramatically improving as, as well. But so yeah, the fund's doing well. The capital ratio is way above its statutory minimum. I think it's up over 8% now. And we had put some improvements in going back four years ago to get the reverse mortgage program on sounder footing between Dana Wade and me and Len Wolfson, including the better use of appraisals. We thought FHA had been subject to some appraisal misrepresentation, if you will, years ago. We'll save that subject for another day. So that program went from a minus 19 billion economic value to a minus 9 billion economic to a minus 700 million now to a positive number in the course of four years. So, and that program too is starting to see more uptake. Certainly has over the last two years since, since COVID, the reverse mortgage program. Yeah. The president's appraisal task force came out with a report recently. What are some of your thoughts on the PAVE recommendations recently released? I wouldn't say I'm sure they have the, the best intentions when they put this task force together. And I think we'd all agree it's a part of our industry that needs some help, needs some work. But I, I was a little concerned that there would seem to be very little representation of people on the task force that actually work in this industry day to day. And not just the industry itself, which did have representation from the subcommittee, I believe. How much did lenders, services, title companies have input on this? And I don't know that they had that much. But again, taking them at good intentions, they put out some things that I think people are still sort of looking at, letting it soak in. And we'll see where it goes. I know the industry out there, the trade groups, rightly thank the task force for their efforts. But the devil's going to be in the details, right? So now what do we do? And is this going to be through rulemaking? Do you want legislation? I mean, I would be a little leery of a Washington, D.C.-driven appraisal policy. <laughs> I would be leery of it, too, yeah. I mean, I, that concerns me a lot. Again, that doesn't mean there isn't room for improvement. But I hope it's, as you can tell, I like the word collaborative. So I hope this is a collaborative process going forward. Well, and you brought that about. When you look back, why do you think you were so successful at bringing both bipartisanship to the table and getting things done that others seem to struggle with before that. Is it collaboration? And how did you pull that off? And what advice would you have to the new group coming in? Well, maybe just because I'm, I'm an old guy now, but even when I was commissioner the first time, the housing market was doing good. Of course, right. It was doing good until it wasn't, right? <laughs> but FHA had kind of fallen down. I mean, our market share in 05 was like 2.5%. FHA was kind of getting marginalized. So I came with this idea, we need to kind of get FHA back in the game, not compete, right. if you will, with the private MIs, but certainly get our market share above 2.5%, which most economists would say, ah, it seems a little low to us. But regardless, I, of course, talked to the White House, talked to the Republicans up on the Hill, and 
They said, if you want to get some done, you got to go get Barney Frank and Maxine Waters. I said, all right, I can go do that. So I went and met with them and the House side, certainly on the Senate side, met with the Senator Patty Murray was was on Senate banking and said, look, this is the FHA modernization bill we want to get done. And they were probably a little suspicious at first, but I remember when I talked to Maxine Waters, these numbers may be a little off because it's been a while, but I told her, I said, in the year 2000, we did 5,000 or so FHA loans in your district. All right. So this is 2006 when I'm talking to her. Right. I said, in, in 2000, we did roughly 5,000 FHA loans. So what do you think we did last year? And she looked at me, she goes, I don't know. I said, 34. She goes, 3,400? I go, no, 34. She goes, well, we got to do something about that. I said, yeah, we need help on the loan levels. I said, we barely did six out of the loans in the state of California in 2006. And she goes, that doesn't seem fair. I said, you're our most populous state. You're darn right it isn't fair. So, look, I know some folks take a stronger view. They want to either be way to the left or way to the right. You don't get anything done. And, and look, if I can get half of what I want, because you'll never get all of it. To me, that's really how you get stuff done in Washington, D.C. By the way, I also learned never be surprised by what you can get just by asking. <laughs> what the hell? And say, hey, yeah. you want to do this? What do you think? Well, this is what I think. All right. Well, this is what I think. Well, it's a little different than what I think. Well, let's figure out how we can work together. So important. I'll never forget the time I had just finished a Fox interview in New York, and my cell phone rang, and it was one of Barney Frank's staff calling and says, Representative Frank would like to meet with you. Can you come down to D.C.? You're in New York. And I said, sure. And, and so I called one of the Washington, D.C. bureau correspondents at Fox. I said, is this a good idea? He says, Dave, I recommend it because when the lights go off, cameras go away, He's a very reasonable man, and you can sit down and talk with these guys. Don't be moved by what the rhetoric you see on TV, which really goes to what's going on by the NBA right now. We have the upcoming initiative where everyone's coming into town for the advocacy, and we meet with everyone. I can't stress how important that is, and no well, one would know that better than you. Well, and I'd you know, be happy to help you have asked, but I, again, it just – I let Barney Frank put his politics aside. Well, he cared deeply about the issue. He did. And if you're emotionally invested in something like I was and we were, then you can work with people. And again, look, my first FHA modernization bill, which sadly died in the Senate, but we got through the House by a vote of 415. That's amazing. That's, that's almost like renaming a post office, right? <laughs> you don't get margins that big, typically. So look, I'm writing several books, but one of them I've been writing is just how to get stuff done in Washington, D.C., and I hope to get it out here in the next year or so. But how to get stuff done and how to survive here. Well, I think that is such an amazing amount of wisdom that could be shared. We got gridlock. We could use that wisdom in there. Brian, one of the books I hope you're writing is your experience under George W.'s administration when you rode around in Air Force One after 9-11. It's one of the most compelling, one of the most touching stories I've ever heard anyone tell, especially one of my favorite parts was you said, I still have the shoes when I walked around the World Trade Center that has the dust on it. It was like sacred. I took those shoes off and put them in a bag and I've saved those because it still has the dust on that. Do I recall that correctly? Uh, 100% correctly. And my FEMA jacket, and I, and I didn't work for FEMA, but someone says, raining, here's an extra FEMA jacket. And of course, we had to wear hard hats. I don't know what happened to my hard hat, but one of the things about it that sticks to me the most, but for several days, I tried to clean my shoes that I wore. The day that we went up there was September the 14th, and Bush mm -hmm. 
went to ground zero and I was with them. I just couldn't bring myself to clean my shoes. And about a week later, I'm talking to a couple of colleagues from the White House. We're at the White House. They were also with me that day, and they were talking about not being able to clean the shoes. It's like there's something sacred about them. And I went, I stopped at a container store on the way home, and I went home, wrapped the shoes in a plastic bag, put them in a container from the container store, wrapped them in duct tape, and haven't touched them since. Wow. I still have them. And, uh, yeah, look, there's a range of emotions that day, but the one that stuck with me the most, and, and I'm sure for the both of you, the amazement that you have people that are first responders. Yeah. Run into the danger while the rest of us are running out of it. It was a long week. I mean, I was oh. with President Bush on 9-11. I was at the Pentagon twice the next day, including early in the morning to go survey it before President Bush went out there. I was at the National Cathedral that Friday and then standing 10 feet away from him at Ground Zero that Friday. And I think I got maybe 10 hours sleep that whole week. I was a lucky one. So many people who, sadly, had no idea of that morning when they woke up the horror they'd be facing. And I'm sure we all have a connection with someone that was impacted that day. And hopefully we won't ever uh, see something like that again. Hopefully not. I certainly do hope not. Thank you so much for your years of service to our industry. Jack, I'll let you wrap up the interview. Well, Brian, David mentioned in the introduction that you're chairman of Gatehouse Strategies. What have you been doing since you left HUD? And what is gate housing doing in this market, and how does that fit into all of this, whether it's affordable housing challenges, origination and servicing, and technology. Well, thanks, Jack. I walked out of the HUD building and said I'm going to take a little time off, which I did, and uh, very little time off. My dad, may rest in peace, because he was 83. I don't know if I'm going to go that long, but I just, I don't know that I'll ever retire, but did take a little time off, and then we launched Gatehouse Strategies in May with some colleagues, all of y'all know, that worked at Fannie, Freddie, HUD, and FHA. And we had this idea that servicers, lenders would need help getting through everything facing them with COVID-19 forbearance, and we could help them, property disposition companies. And within that company, we also do affordable housing, working with communities, public housing authorities. We have the former assistant secretary at HUD as one of the partners. And we've been busy. A lot of people have reached out to us. A lot of technology companies, too. That space is just moving really, really fast. We actually hosted a, a dinner last week here in D.C. We're getting a little back to normal. Let's get some of the trade groups. Let's get some of the leaders in housing. And let's let's go have a nice dinner somewhere. It was uh, good to get everybody together and do a little networking and a little discussing of housing issues. And we're going to do more of those going forward. Well, again, we're so grateful for your years of service and what you're still doing inside of this very complex industry of ours. You touched on technology. Are, are we going to continue to see new levels of innovation? I'd, I'd like to get your insights and let's share that with our listeners on where do you think technology is going? Well, there's a lot of things that technology can continue to do in this industry. And you hear a lot about blockchain. You hear a lot about AI and machine learning. And I think a lot of robotics processing automation, which we deployed at HUD, by the way. And there's a role for AI in this industry. I fully understand you want to avoid some algorithms that might disproportionately impact vulnerable groups, if you will, to the point, let's assume the best of intentions. Yep. Let's don't stifle innovation. Let's see what's developed. To the degree this industry needs to make changes. And I have 
every bit of confidence that they can make those changes. But we don't want to create an environment where people are afraid to innovate for fear of some heavy-handed enforcement on something they haven't even yet created. It's like, let's work collaboratively to build the technology. Let's see how the technology works. And again, make changes as we need to. Well, I encourage anyone listening to this message to reach out to Brian and the Gatehouse Strategies to get guidance on this. There's certainly no one that has a better perspective on how to develop technology that threads that needle, providing valuable services while still being within the guidelines of being compliant. Again, Brian, thanks so much for taking on. Jax, thank you so much for joining me in this interview. It's been just delightful. Appreciate you so much, Brian. And I'm glad you're planning to stick around for a long time. I'm 71. I'm still going strong. I have no plans. I think my oldest client is Jack Guttentag. He's 98 years old, still going strong, former professor at Wharton on economics. So if he's still going, we got some runway ahead of us. We can keep going for a while, sir. Now we do. Well, thank you again, David. Jack, enjoyed it, and hope to see you soon down the road at a conference. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you so much. Jack, that was a special interview. I really enjoyed that. You did a great job adding in and joining with me on that interview. Folks, that wraps up this week's interview. I want to tell you this. You can go check out Brian's website and his background. We've posted it on our website. encourage you to do so. It was really good. Jack, are you back? I'm back, David. Good. That was a really good interview. The part about 9-11 really touched my heart. When he talks about it, there's so much passion and experience in that, what he experienced that day. So can't wait for his memoirs to come out. Yeah. I mean, to be a ground zero three days after the tragic event must have been very emotionally moving. It's got to be. It was a good interview. I appreciate you participating in it. And folks, we thank you so much for sharing this interview with your colleagues. This is one of those important ones that everyone listened to, both this one and the one we did last week. Of course, I would like to think every one of our podcasts are important and should be shared. At least we, we believe it is. And it is. We have our growing, growing listener base. And we're so grateful because you, our listeners, have shared this with so many of your colleagues. I encourage you to continue to do so. Next week, we've got Troy Anderson with Finastra coming on, getting to know Troy real well. This guy has got some depth of blending experience along with technology. You're going to enjoy this interview as we talk more about where technology is heading. It's appropriate, seeing as the MBA Tech Conference is going on. So we want to say a special thank you to our sponsors again, Finastra, Lenders One, Mobility MMI, Modex, the MBA, Knowledge Coop, the Mortgage Collaborative, SnapDoc, Success Kit, Lender Toolkit, Total Expert, Form Free, and now Simple Nexus. Appreciate you all for being here. Share this podcast. We appreciate you. Have a great week, everyone. Look forward to having you back here next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.